so much better your way. We thank you that we can come to the house of God and commune with you. Lord, we thank you for your shed blood and broken body. Jesus, thank you for suffering our penalty, bearing our shame, so that we might have fellowship, relationship, knowing our Father in heaven. Thank you that we are called children of God. And so, Lord, as we uh, enter into this time of your word, we, we anticipate, we expect uh, just a, a fresh outpouring of your spirit. We are desiring to, to know you more intimately and more in depth, with more detail, or that we would be rooted and grounded and maturing in our faith, pressing on, persevering, for there's so much outside these walls, Lord, that creates strife and, and heaviness, uncertainty. And so, Lord, we come to you right now for refreshment. Life comes at us in many angles and many facets. And we know, Lord, in this world, in this life, we will have tribulation. We will have trials. And uh, we know, Lord, that apart from you, we can do nothing. So we pray, Lord, you would empty us out tonight, fill us with you. Where we are weak, Lord, would you be made strong? And so, Lord, as we uh, think about and contemplate our state of our country right now, we just ask that you would blow through this land with your Holy Spirit, that you would awaken the eyes of the American people. Lord, that we would once again be a, a nation that loves the word of God that is founded, that was founded on your righteous principles, Lord. And we've abandoned them and we confess that now and we ask for forgiveness. We ask for your blood just to, to cleanse us and we have many sins as a nation, Lord, but we pray, Lord, that the remnant that is remaining, that loves you, that calls you by, calls you God, calls you Father. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would lift this country up from where it is right now. It's at such a crossroads. And Lord, if we are at a place where there is impending judgment, Lord, we understand you, you are righteous and you are holy. But we do pray for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And so would you bestow that upon your people now, upon this nation now. So Lord, be with us now as we get into your word. We thank you, we praise you, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and get into Romans chapter 1, 18 uh, through 32. And i going to look at this and title this, Suppressing the Truth in Unrighteousness. Paul is going to give a scathing indictment on sin, and, and specifically he's going to set his sights on the pagan. But before that, just a quick little uh, review, review of where we were last week. Um, Again, my, my old education days, I always kind of reviewed before I went forward. So uh, Paul began his epistle with a hearty greeting to the believers in Rome in, in verses 1 through 17. In the first seven verses, he kind of presented his credentials, his credibility, if you will. And he started it off as saying, I'm a bondservant. I'm a doulos. I am a willing servant of the Lord. Um, and, and that's how he presented himself. And then he went on to, to call himself an apostle of God, set apart a preacher of the gospel. And he was set aside, set apart for the Gentiles first, but he had a huge burden for the, uh, the nation of Israel. He loved his Jewish brethren, but he, God had, had set him uh, to be a, uh, a 
an apostle for the Gentiles. And in so doing, he had the ability or the authority once churches were planted or uh, that he either planted or other people had planted, he then was their spiritual authority. He would call out false teachers. He would call out certain sins that were prevalent in the church. And so he was that kind of moral spiritual authority for the church during that time. And so we don't typically have, we don't have those types of apostles now. We have missionaries that do go out and plant churches, but they aren't necessarily the spiritual authority as Paul was back in that time. And then verses 8 through 15, uh, Paul gives us an insight into his pastoral heart. Paul expresses his thankfulness for his believers and, and their faith being proclaimed out to the, throughout the world. That was just such a, a, a source of joy and, and, and really pride for him. Paul let, lets them know that he has been praying for the believers in Rome. And so again, we talked about when somebody lets you know that they're praying for you, that is such a special and intimate gesture, and, and it's so touching. And so these, these uh, believers might not have known that Paul was making mention uh, of them in their prayers quite regularly, quite frequently. And, and so that was definitely a source of encouragement for them. Uh, Paul describes his love for his brothers and sisters in verses 13 through 15, where he says he was under obligation as an apostle to go to them. He had such a desire to go to them. And he said, I long to see you. He was yearning to get in their presence and, and be with them in fellowship and, and have this kind of two-way, uh, this two-way street that we talked about last, last week. And it's so important to be in fellowship, to be able to encourage one another, to pray with one another, bear one another's burdens. It is uh, the, the whole reason why we don't forsake the gathering of the brethren. And so this burden, again, created an eagerness. And that eagerness, we talked about, it was prevalent in his mind. It was a readiness of mind to, to preach the gospel. It was kind of consuming his thoughts. That, that was driving him to get to Rome. And then Pastor Eric taught Sunday night on verses, or Sunday morning, excuse me. <laughs> and and we, we came back later for a little Encore. But no, verses 16 and 17, Paul reaffirms uh, the positional strength of God. He uh, said he's unashamed of the gospel. What a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, statement to make and something that hopefully we all can back up to be unashamed of the gospel and no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. And for who? For everyone. For the Jew first, for the Gentile or the Greek, it, the gospel is for everyone. It's anybody who believes the gospel is for. And so the righteousness of God then is afforded to man by faith. The righteous man, the just man shall live by faith. The entire book of Romans kind of hangs on that statement. And, and so it's such a beautiful statement taken from Habakkuk, uh, the, the prophet. And it's a statement that changed much of the Christian church. Uh, the churches uh, were uh, steeped in legalism and religiosity and ceremony. And, and this particular statement, obviously, Martin Luther took and really uh, created an entire movement based on faith. It, it really uh, changed the course of, of our Christian churches. And so when a man, man or woman receives Christ on faith, we now have the imputed righteousness, and we will get into that type of righteousness and the imparted righteousness, imputed and imparted. We're going to break that down as we get further into Romans. That's going to be another night. Not tonight. And so in chapters 1, uh, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, essentially for the next 63 verses, for the next couple weeks here, we're going to see Paul uh, give, like I said, one of the most comprehensive assaults on those who willfully reject God. He's going to indict, he's going to almost be like a, a, a lawyer in a courtroom, and he's going to lay out an airtight case as to their error and the consequences of that error. And, and so in chapter 2, 
tonight we're going to be looking at the pagan or the heathen. The rest of chapter 1 here we're going to be looking at the heathen or, or the pagan, the, false, uh, the worshipers of false gods. And then in chapter 2, he's going to look at the moralist or, or the hypocrite, somebody who believes that their self-righteousness is the standard that they, they set for themselves, is the, their standard of righteousness is what they set for themselves. They do what's right in their own eyes. And then we have the, the, the Hebrew or the religious person, somebody who's trying to attain righteousness by fulfilling God's law. And so for the next 63 verses, we're going to see uh, what, what some commentators would say, the heathen, we're going to see the hypocrite, and we're going to see the Hebrew on trial. And each one of them are going to be absolutely eviscerated by Paul in terms of their sin. Now, that's going to be difficult. Sin is a difficult topic to talk about, right? Sin can start to make us squirm in our seat and maybe raise our body temperature a little bit. But it's a good thing, and that's something that this church has always prided itself on, is we're not going to skip over any verses. It, it might be a little bit of, of a difficult conversation, but God's word is truth, and is, if we can uh, stick to God's word uh, and, and not skip over anything, then we are doing our jobs as, as pastors, as teachers of the word. And so he's thoroughly going to define the different varieties of sin, the numerous ways in which it manifests in a person's life, and the devastating repercussions, the devastating consequences that sin has. And we're going to see almost a downward spiral of how sin goes from uh, point A to point B. It's almost a continuum of, of depravity. And so uh, Paul, the best defense for Paul is a great offense, you know, um, I had a lot of experience playing basketball, and sometimes I wasn't the best defender. And so I always thought, you know, if that guy scored a two-pointer on me, I'm going to score a three-pointer. I'm going to go on the offense because maybe I can't defend him, but I'm going to go on the offense and, and, and attack him. And that's what Paul kind of is doing now. Not that he uh, doesn't necessarily can't defend the faith, but he really goes on the offense here, and he really starts to pinpoint and, 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 and attack those that are in that false religion, that, that heathenistic lifestyle. And so Either way, uh, they're going to be suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. He's, he's going after those that are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. We'll break that down a little bit here. And so no doubt Paul penned this, Roman, this letter of Romans in Corinth. And Corinth was a city where there was open, rampant, shameless paganism. There was gods all over the place. It was easier to find a god than, than a man. That's what they said. Uh, so he had a firsthand account of paganism. He lived amongst it. He witnessed it. He experienced it. So there's no doubt he had a great uh, idea of what he is talking about. Paul begins uh, his opening remarks by setting his sights, like I said, on the pagan man and the pagan woman. So think about paganism for a moment. It's not only the refusal to believe God, which would be uh, somebody who, who is just not sure, maybe uh, agnostic or atheistic. It's not, they're not atheists. and not that they don't believe in God, um, but they're putting their faith and trust in a false God. They're making an exchange, if you will. And you will see that quite a bit in, these, in this passage of Scripture. You're going to see this exchange, and it's a worthless exchange. It's a terrible deal what that man, these pagans are making. And, and they're making exchange after exchange, and, and there is absolutely no profit. It's, it's a terrible trade, a terrible deal on their behalf. And so, uh, but paganism proves that we, first of all, have a desire, an innate desire to worship. If we're not going to worship the true God, then man sets up some other false God to worship. We have this innate understanding that we're going, we're supposed to worship and we're going to set something up that's bigger and, 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 and more of an authority than us. And, and unfortunately, people are, are very lost when they're in, in that form of false uh, religion, false gods. They're, they're worshiping false gods because they are worshiping uh, what we'll see here uh, is demons. And 
People are, when they worship idols, when they set up an idol, and, and you can think of different idolatrous type religions um, that, that have idols as, as their uh, gods, there's actually a demon behind it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And then in, verse, in, in chapter 10, verse 20, in 1 Corinthians, it says, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So these very false gods have a demon behind them. There's either good or evil. There's either darkness or light. There aren't 15 different religions or 100 different religions. There's the true religion, the true God, and everything else is a front or a Trojan horse for the enemy. And so what we have here is Paul saying, if you're worshiping this false god, you're actually opening the door to demonic activity in your life. That's a very dangerous position to be in. So there's only one true God, and every other so-called God is false. And again, behind that false God is indeed a demon. And until a person is persuaded of this, they have no idea or no uh, idea or need for salvation. They have no idea that they need a Savior. And so that's where Paul is getting. It's it's such a flawed position to be in. And um, truly, the the person who is putting their faith, trust, worth into a false God, they're really uh, in a a real dangerous position. And and, and we'll see this degradation of human behavior in, in this passage as we come up through it. And so... Um, it's been said that within, action, within the action of the divine righteousness, there is a place for deliverance and for condemnation, a place for salvation and for punishment. So I'll say that again. Within the action of the divine righteousness, there is a place for deliverance and for condemnation and a place for salvation and for punishment. God's righteousness is going to be exacted in one of two ways, deliverance unto salvation or condemnation unto punishment. See, God doesn't turn a blind eye or sweep sin underneath the rug. He doesn't ignore it. But he also doesn't decimate us if we're in a lifestyle of sin. So until we understand that we can be washed and cleansed, until we receive the blood of Jesus and receive him as our Lord and Savior, and and we're washed and cleansed of sin, he doesn't ignore our sin, but he doesn't decimate us either right away. There, there is a time and point, and we'll, we'll get to a couple examples where only God knows where that line is crossed, but there is a moral depravity that continues to, uh, to, to grade over time, and, and we're, Paul's going to express that here today. So thankfully, when we do come to Christ, he has, as Paul says in, in verse 17 of, of Romans 1, he says it's from faith to faith. We begin in faith, and we continue in faith. And so that's what we're doing here tonight. The righteous shall live by faith. And if you don't have faith, you are now in this category of unrighteous. And, and, and we, will, we will look at that here. So, so when we have this kind of degradation, we're going to see a willful rejection of God. We're going to see a wicked belief system that, that masks itself in kind of a pseudo-religion and a pseudo-belief um, system, kind of pseudo-spirituality. Then it's going to get into unprovoked and unrestrained sexual behavior. And then it, it slides into a sin on a widespread level and a host of varieties. And, and, and we'll see Paul list out uh, a host of variety of sin and, and the ultimate perversion of man in comparison to how God has created him. God has created us for his intentions and his purposes, and sin perverts all of that. And, and we're going to see that here tonight. So Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
Back in verse 17, Paul said the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, reveals God's righteousness. So the gospel reveals God's righteousness, the power unto salvation. But here in chapter 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. So God is love and therefore wants none to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. And the gospel, like I said earlier, is for everyone. It's for Jews. It's for Gentiles. It's, it's for everyone who will receive it. But as Paul shifts gears here in, in chapter 18, he's giving you the other side of God's nature, his holiness. And so he must judge and, and punish sin. There is judgment for sin. And part of that judgment will result uh, in, in a lack of his, um, his hand upon your life. He's going to release you unto what you uh, are wanting to do. He's going to give you over to your own desires, your own depraved mind. He's going to allow certain things to take place because the consequences of your sin are, are going to be the result of your thinking and your rejection of him. So God's wrath is not the result of, of his temperament. He's, he's not one of these kind of angry fathers. He's not trying to exact revenge. He doesn't have an ill temperament or a short fuse or a quick, quick fuse. But God's wrath is going to be revealed because he's holy. And, and so this judgment is, is, is righteous and it's just. He's holy. And in addition, God all, also provided, by the way, God already provided the avenue for his wrath. He provided his son. He poured out his wrath on his son. So any wrath or any judgment that we receive because of our sin is completely needless. It's completely unnecessary. If we put our faith and trust in Christ, we can escape where we are not destined unto wrath. The, the, the righteousness of God was, was proved through Jesus Christ at the cross. And so therefore, anything that a, a heathen or a pagan receives is so unnecessary because they're denying the truth. They are rejecting a savior. And so the father's already poured out his wrath on his son. And unfortunately, they are going to have to suffer the due penalty of, of their sin as a result. And so the, the wrath of God is a reality that only God knows the limit. He knows where that line is. He knows where the grace is going to run out, where his unmerited favor, undeserved favor runs out, where his mercy, and he finally will say, okay, I'm going to give you over to what you desire. So real quick, ungodliness or godlessness is lack of man's reverence and respect towards God. In a sense, it's more than just neglect of God or indifference toward God. It's, it's outright rebellion. And then unrighteousness is, is wickedness, and that is uh, man's sin against other men. Uh, we perpetrate uh, our sins or, or we victimize uh, other people. And so man's sin against other men is unrighteousness. Ungodliness is man's sin against God. So when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, he had laws one through four pertain to godliness. You shall not have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And you shall remember the Sabbath. Those all had to do with the vertical laws. Those were our relationship to God. And so any breaking of those laws would have been considered ungodliness. We are sinning against God. And then the next six, laws five through ten, honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, bear false witness, or covet. Those are the horizontal laws that we can now commit towards one another. Those are the laws of righteousness. Uh, and, and any breaking of those commandments now would be considered unrighteousness. And so that's what Paul is saying here, ungodliness and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Now remember, our, uh, a couple weeks ago, again, Pastor Eric taught about love God, love people. In Matthew, 
the, the law and the prophets are summed up. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we love others as we love ourselves, we love our neighbor as we love ourselves, those laws are covered. Those laws, there is no sin when we love God and we love people. And so that's what Paul is saying here. When you don't love God, you have a very hard time loving people. All of those things now start to break down. And notice they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Suppressing the truth means carries the idea of a Somebody who's steering a boat and they're trying to go upstream, like a salmon fishing upstream. Have you ever seen a salmon trying to go upstream and, and go up that, that current? That's what it's, you're suppressing it. The, the natural flow is to come up and they're suppressing it down. They're pushing truth down and suppressing it in unrighteousness. You know, God's truth will always bring uh, sin to the surface. And that's why, that's why it's difficult to sit in here and you might be engaged in a sin and when that sin is pinpointed through God's word, it brings it to the surface. And now truth is confronting your sin. And all of a sudden, and I've been there, I've been there many times, when all of a sudden you just start to squirm and it doesn't feel good. And that's the conviction of God, the conviction of God's word. It starts to pierce you. And so sin will all, excuse me, truth will always bring, God's truth will always bring sin to the surface. And I kind of thought about this for a little bit. I, you know, think about a plumbing issue and you had a backed up toilet, and you call your plumber, and you said, you know, I have a backed up toilet. He, he, he tells you to go get a certain chemical, pour that down, and instead of flushing all of that refuse down the, 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 the uh, pipes, all of a sudden it starts to come up, and all of the, the stuff that is down there, the toilet paper and the waste, it starts to come up, and now you're starting to plunge. You're starting to suppress all of that unrighteousness, all of that, that gunk down, and it just keeps coming up, and the bowl starts to fill up. That's what sin is, right? When, you're, when sin starts to bubble up and you start to keep trying to push it down, it's like, it's like uh, having that, that backed up toilet. It's disgusting, right? Good picture. You guys are gonna, ready to go out and eat after this? So, and so that, that's, what, that's what people are doing when they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And so one of two things can occur when truth confronts you. When truth confronts your sin, one of two things can occur. You can relent, become subject to the truth, you can humble yourself, and you can confess the ways in which you have been dishonoring to God, maybe sinned against others, sinned against your fellow man. Or you can do it, what, what the, the heathen does here. They suppress it, they push it down, and they push it down in their unrighteousness, and therefore they deny God, and they de deny the knowledge uh, of the truth. They deny that they even know the truth at that particular point. And Paul now is going to lay out two reasons why my, mankind is denying, uh, guilty when denying God. He's going to lay out two reasons. We're going to get to the second reason later. The first reason is creation. Creation, where, where everything that's around us, he's going to lay that out. And then the second one is our conscience. And that's going to be in chapter 2. We'll, we'll, we'll look at conscience later. But there's two reasons why man is without excuse. And one of them is, is creation. So verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Verse 24, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And so verse 19, we see this evidence that is within them. 
There is an internal proof first. It's not necessarily the conscience, but Paul focuses on this natural revelation. It's not a scriptural revelation. I don't have to dive into my Bible, bring out my commentaries, pray through the Spirit to try to get some spiritual revelation. This is a natural revelation, meaning we have kind of this this innate ability to know that God exists or a God exists. And then we we go on that journey of finding what, what the true God is. And hopefully that's where evangelism comes in. That's where sharing your faith comes in. That's where sharing truth comes in. But we have this innate understanding that there is something greater than us, a greater power, right? You hear some people, I I talked to a guy the other day at the park. He says, you know, the universe only gave us one daughter. The universe only gave us this little girl. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting way to put it. But he knew there was something greater, something broader, something more powerful than him. And he was ascribing uh, uh, honor to that by, you know, the universe gave me uh, this daughter or gave us this daughter. And so it's interesting to note that different people groups, different tribes that are met by missionaries, every time uh, these missionaries give accounts that these people are not atheistic even though they might be in remote parts of the world that never maybe necessarily been contacted or very seldom contacted by the outside world. They're not atheistic. They have some type of God or gods. They have some type of worship system. And they understand that they don't meet their God's standards, so they sin in a sense and they fall short. And they have some sort of sacrificial system or, or worship system to try to appease these gods that they've created for themselves. Innately, they know that there's something greater than themselves. And so we have this kind of natural understanding, this internal. But then we have the external proof, creation. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, his glory, majesty, and infinite knowledge is on full display when you look at creation. One of the more popular, uh, you know, well-known psalms, Psalm 19, 1 through 3, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. The psalmist said the heavens are telling of God's glory. You just have to look up, and you can see God's glory. Abraham Lincoln had a great quote. I don't know if you've heard it before, but Lincoln said, I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon the earth and be an atheist, but I cannot conceive how he can look up into the heavens and say there is no God. Think about that. When you can look down onto this earth, you know, if you're looking from the moon and you just see this small little blue ball and, you know, and it's just kind of you know, uh, in orbit going around the sun, um, you'd say, yeah, you could see how somebody could believe there is no God. But change the perspective and look up. And you look up at a clear night sky that's unpolluted by city lights and you just see the vast amounts of stars and planets that are before your eyes. And you just have to marvel. You have to think there's something bigger than me out there. I can't deny that there is not a God. And then I I believe I did a little research and I don't know if this number is true, but it said that there's uh, three sextillion stars in the universe. That's three with 23 zeros. That's how big the number is. That's how many stars are in the universe. Now, how they come to that figure, I don't know. But that's a lot of stars. It, it's estimated that that's more than the grains of sand on Earth. Think about how many sands are just grains of sand are down at Huntington Beach, Newport Beach, let alone the entire Earth. That's, there's more stars than there are grains of sand. And so when you think about the details of a hummingbird, Hummingbirds fly at an average, the the little hummingbird can fly 25 to 30 miles an hour. When it dives, it can dive upwards of 50 miles an hour. Sometimes I sit in my backyard and I'll see one flutter by and I just marvel at how they can stay uh, suspended in air. 
They're the only bird that can fly backwards and, and diag- I mean, they, they, they can move and dart uh, forwards, diagonally backwards. It, it's truly amazing. A hummingbird's heart beats up to 1,260 times per minute. How does it not just combust and all of a sudden explode, right? If our heart rate gets up above 100, you know, I'm, I'm sitting down and, and I, need a, I need a break. So 1,260 times per minute. Uh, hummingbirds have a great memory. Uh, they remember every flower and feeder they've been to and how long it will take for that flower to refill with the nectar. Has, has that a, a, a great of a memory. When the food is scarce they, and when they're fatigued or when they're fatigued, they go into a hibernation mode to conserve their energy and, and prolong their life. They just have this, this design within them. Now, you can say that's evolution. You can say that just evolved over time and somehow the bird knew to go into this hibernated state, but I, I, would, I would argue against it. The human body in and of itself, and I took this uh, from uh, Bill Morgan's website. Bill Morgan is, is back. He has a creation uh, science um, uh, ministry, first Saturday of every month. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, he goes over all the different facets of creation and, and, and why it screams of God's glory and, and God's grand design. But on his website, he says there's 42 billion miles of DNA within our body. So if you were to take all the DNA in our body and lay it out in one long line, there's 42 B with a billion with a B, million miles of DNA. Now, just to put that in perspective, it's roughly about 2.7 billion miles from Earth to Pluto. So think about how many times your DNA can span between Earth and Pluto. I'll let you do the math. So creation screams of design, whether you're looking at the, the heavens, where you're looking at nature, whether you're looking within the, and I didn't even get into all the different systems of the human body. We could be here all night. All the different ways in which creation screams of design. And so by God revealing himself through the places, uh, uh, places us in a position of making an informed decision, not an educated guess, an informed decision. We have more than enough proof. Does he exist or not? And there are those who, who will say, well, I don't need church to worship God. I can worship God out in, in nature. But, but nature doesn't, nature screams of God that there is a grand designer, that there is a creator. But it, then the next step is salvation. Nature doesn't uh, give us a savior, right? So we can go out and appreciate God for what he's created and how he's designed it. But it doesn't mean that now we have salvation. Nature proves God it exists, but it makes no mention of a savior. And so verse 21, we see the continuance of, uh, of a downward spiral. In verse 21, we're going to, again, they've already denied God's existence. They've, they've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, and now they have a wicked belief system. And they're going to justify some of their actions through this wicked belief system. Verse, and we're going to see the first exchange, by the way. You'll, you'll see this exchange. You'll see three exchanges. This is the first one. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they came, became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. This is willful disobedience. They knew God, but they did not honor him as such. That is willful disobedience. They knew God but did not honor him. These are not naive choices. These are not mistakes made because of, uh, you know, a cognitive inability. I just can't get it. They knew it. 
It wasn't a lack of knowledge. It was a heart issue, and we'll get to that here in a moment. These are conscious choices, willful acts. These are out of pure rebelliousness and disobedience. You know, I have a golden retriever, and he's about six years old now, five and a half, and he's figured some things out here later in life, but he is a hard-headed dog. And so when he was a younger dog, I would let him go out about 10 o'clock to finish, you know, this is one last, you know, hurrah for the night, use the restroom, and then, and then that would be it. Um, and so he would, and, and of course, I'm, I'm ready for bed, so I'm not going to tell you what I wear, but it's, uh, you get the idea. I'm not, not necessarily dressed to be outside, let's just say that. And so I'm expecting him to go out, handle his business, and come right back. Well, he would go out, and he would start to wander one house down. His name's Curry. Curry, come on. He'd look at me. He knew exactly what he was doing, but he willfully disobeyed. Now he's two houses down. Now he's across the street. Now he's three houses down. And so now I have to go out in my shorts, no shirt, and now go get this dog who was being willfully disobedient. He knew better. He wasn't honoring me. He wasn't honoring my commands as his quote-unquote master, right? And that is infuriating. It wasn't that he was going to wake up the neighbors. He was willfully disobeying me. That is a different dynamic than him just not knowing. If he was a puppy, a six-month-old puppy frolicking around in the front yard, I would totally get it. He just doesn't know any better. He hasn't been trained yet. This dog knew better. Um, Another example is, uh, you know, I used to coach freshman basketball, and, and in the summertime, you get a fresh crop of new players, and they wouldn't have any idea what the plays were, where to even be on the floor. They were just happy to have a uniform running around out there. We'd go to summer leagues, and they would have a great time playing basketball, and I couldn't hold them accountable or expect them to know the plays, the basic principles we're going to play with, uh, the fundamentals. Those things hadn't been instilled in them yet, so if they made mistakes in those areas, I couldn't yell at them. I couldn't get mad at them. I, I would just continue to encourage them. But when we came back in the fall and we had months and months of practice and basketball season typically started in November, by November, December, at that point, they should know the plays. They should know how we execute our defense. They should know the, uh, the fundamentals. But if I had a guy go out there and we call a play and he's not willing to run the play, he's going to call his own play. Or instead of uh, executing the proper fundamentals, he's going to get loose with the basketball and careless and turn it over. And he's going to be defiant of me as a coach. Again, the consequences of, of losing a game is one thing, but the defiance is different. It's a different dynamic. So too is it with our kids. The consequences of, of their actions at times, we it's hard for us to, to know that, you know, they might have to suffer some consequences of, of bad decisions. But when it's in willful defiance of us, it takes it, at least for me as a dad, it takes it to a whole nother level. Because to me, it's so unnecessary. If you just listened to me as your dad, you wouldn't even have to be going through this. But you defied me. You, you willfully set me aside. And so it, it, it takes it to a whole nother level. And so too it is, it is with man and God. When we know the difference, when we know that there is the truth, uh, when there is a God and we willfully suppress it and we reject God, it is now a whole nother ballgame. And so when a person dethrones God from not just their life, but his creation as God, they, now, uh, they know God exists, but give him no honor. There, there is consequences. And the consequence here that we, f- we first see is they become futile in their speculations and their hearts become darkened. Futile in their speculations, the more the person learns, the more their knowledge puffs them up, the more high and mighty they get in their intellect, the more they begin to rationalize their behavior, the more firm they are in their unbelief. We see this all the time in, in academia and in, in those that are in the university. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra. 
And they healed the man from his mother's womb. And they told the man to, to, to get up, and he leapt to his feet. And the people around Lystra saw this. They said, the gods must be like men. They have come down to us. And so they started to, to call Barnabas Zeus, and they started to call Paul Hermes. If you shop at South Coast Plaza, it's Hermes. And so Paul, <laughs> Zeus, Barnabas was Zeus, and, and, and Paul was, was Hermes. And the priest of Zeus came out and began wanting to offer a sacrifice to them. And, and so in Acts chapter 14, 15, Paul and Barnabas, when hearing of this, rushed out and said, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. We're just like you guys. We're, we're the same. And preach the gospel to you that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God. Turn away from these false gods, from this pagan religion to the one true living God. And then he quotes Psalm 146.6, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He testifies of God's creation in, in authenticating who God is. The one true living God who made everything, the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And so God is on display there. And, and Paul says that with, with Barnabas in this interaction. The people of Lystra were worshiping vain images and, and man-made uh, valueless statues, and they were worshiping idols that, that further estranged them from God, continued to push them away from God. In, in Daniel chapter 5, we see the king of ba Babel, uh, Babylon, Belshazzar. He was holding a feast with a thousand of his nobles. They had their concubines, they had their wives, and they're having a grand old time, an enor enormous party, but they're drinking out of the gold vessels uh, of the house of God to drink their wine, and, and, and again, this, just carousing. And suddenly Belshazzar sees the famous writing on the wall. He sees the hand of God writing on the wall. And Belshazzar's wise men and conjurers couldn't come up with the, with the interpretation. So the queen remembers Daniel and says, uh, uh, Daniel will know the, the interpretation. So he brings Daniel, uh, Belshazzar brings Daniel out, and Daniel starts to rebuke him. He first rebukes him about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And he says, you are following in, in your father's pride. And then he goes on in, in Daniel 5, 23, says, But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heavens. So again, think of his, his depraved mind right now, or his, his mind that has been in futile in his speculations. You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of, the, of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand your life, breath, and all your ways you have not glorified. He rebukes the king in that moment and says, you are worshiping metal and wood and stone. You're not worshiping the very God that puts breath in your lungs. And Belshazzar committed the very acts Paul is speaking of. His foolish heart was darkened. And Daniel then interpreted the writing on the wall, and if you remember, it said three things. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. You have been weighted, weight, excuse me, you have been weighed on the scales and found def deficient. And third, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. That night, Belshazzar died. Darius took over, Darius took over uh, that, that kingdom at that point. And so Belshazzar had a limit he reached God's, God's limit at that particular point. God knows that line. Belshazzar had crossed it. He became futile in his speculations. His heart was so darkened. He was so brazen with his sin. And, and, and they were carousing and drinking with the, the articles of the temple. And therefore, God said, I'm sorry, Belshazzar, your, your time has come. 
Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Again, the height of foolishness is intensified with the boasting of being wise and all-knowing. So they think they're all-knowing. They're professing to be wise. They become fools. And in so doing, God then turns them over to these uh, exchange the glory for an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Nebuchadnezzar did this. He erected a huge golden statue for for the people, of himself, for the people to worship. In Paul's time, the Romans had to worship Caesar as God. It was required. When when when, uh, Moses was up on Mount Sinai, and, and he was getting the law from God, and he was delayed. He was, there, there was a time when they didn't know if Moses was coming back down. What did they create? They created the molten image, right? And, and uh, in Exodus 32.8, God says, They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And they've said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you from the land of Egypt. They were just fresh off of a miraculous extraction out of Egypt. And yet now they create this molten image of a calf and they're sacrificing and worshiping to it. Again, complete, complete foolishness. They exchange the glory of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals. A molten calf they were worshiping instead of the living God who just delivered them from Israel. So also we see the people of Israel uh, falling into this, this uh, type of sin. Incidentally, the worship of man and beast will come together in Revelation in the tribulation period. For the Apostle Paul, excuse me, Apostle John in Revelation chapter 13, verse 18 says, Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is of a man. And his number is 666. So beast worship, images, uh, worshiping uh, uh, beasts and, and animals, and the worship of man is going to come together at the end times, and it's going to hit a climax of one final act of rebellion, and God's going to exact his judgment. We're going to see the second exchange here. We've got to hustle a little bit. Time is running short. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, and you might want to add in a little parenthetical sexual impurity is, is what's implied there, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There's another exchange. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So here in verses 24 and 25, God honors the choice of the heathen, the willful choice to deny him. And so therefore, he takes us back. If you remember in verse 18, that word therefore, sometimes you've heard it, right? Why is therefore, therefore? So therefore, it takes us back to verse 18 when Paul indicates the wrath of God is being revealed. So therefore, because the wrath of God is being revealed, he gave them over. He's releasing. His hand is now releasing the grip on on these people's lives. And as a result, they're giving over to the lust of their hearts. God's wrath includes a giving over, an allowance. We're going to let you suffer the consequences of what you really want. If this is your choice, I'm going to honor your choice. I'm going to release my hand and, and allow you to do this. So if you want to abandon the truth, which has been instilled to you by God, it's, it's instilled in us, right? It's within. If you want to deny my creation and, and, and deny me that way as well, then I will release you to the lusts of your heart. And, and God takes a kind of a hands-off approach or, or releases his grip on their lives. And the Bible says that the natural man's heart, so the lusts of their heart, 
You know, a lot of times people say, oh, he has got a good heart. He's, he's a good guy. He's, she, she's a good person. She's got a good heart. Well, the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. Who could know it? And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. And the psalmist uh, David in, in Psalm 51, 10 through 13, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain with me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. Create in me a clean heart. David was aware his heart was unclean. God can only clean our hearts. And so when God allows our heart to go the way it wants to go, it goes with lustful passion. So Paul proved with great evidence that this is not a matter of the mind. It, that which is known about God is evident to them. He, he, Paul said that in, in, in earlier. He said God, God's invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature is clearly seen. It's, it's recognizable to them. This is not a matter of the mind. It's understood. These, these people understand what they're doing, that the pagan understands what he's doing. And Jeremiah says the Lord will search the heart and will test the mind. The Lord's going to search the heart and test the mind. So they are given over to impurity, but more specifically, sexual immorality. And that is connected to cult prostitution. You see, these pagan religions often projected the people's sexual appetites. So the way in which they would worship would be through cult prostitutes. And so these cult prostitutes would then, hopefully, that the act of, of uh, having sex with these temple, temple prostitutes would hopefully increase their flocks and their herds and their fields. And so this, this act of reproduction would hopefully, re, uh, they believed would result in blessing in, in, their, in their lives. But the depravity of man is now on full display. They're rationalizing their sexual behavior through pseudo-religion, pseudo-spirituality, pseudo and, and they're rejecting the true and living God in the process. And now they become sexually enslaved, and they're starting to fall down the moral continuum here. And so we get into uh, this worthless exchange. And number two, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They started to, re again, start to worship uh, other things. And so um, in India, it's interesting, 94% of the people are Hindu in India. And to kill a cow in that, pagan, in that pagan country or the pagan religion is considered murder, and to eat a cow is considered cannibalism. So India has a huge hunger issue, has a huge uh, problem of, of feeding the amount of people there, and yet they have cows just roaming free millions of cows roaming free. And not only is it an untapped food source, that would be sacrilege to them, but it's also that the cows are competing for uh, food and, and, and water and resources. So they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they're, they're worshiping the creature rather than creator. And so we see this downward spiral, the willful disregard of God, and now they have this wicked belief system rationalizing their sexual sin. And verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Verse 27, and in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So again, we see another exchange. They exchange the natural function, the natural function for something that is unnatural. Again, God is letting go a little bit more. Now they're moving further down, and now this is talking about homosexuality, which is a very, very hot-button topic, right? And so they're giving them over to these 
this type of uh, immorality, this unprovoked and unrestrained sexual behavior. Sodom and Gomorrah found themselves in the same condition. It was so bad, God rained down fire and brimstone, completely destroying the cities. And, and, and just for the sake of time, if you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, Peter talks about um, the Lord knows how to rest. Uh, he rescued righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. There was men that were, again, burning in homosexuality, and they were beating down Lot's door. In Jude 7, he talks about it as uh, they were going after strange flesh. The same, same uh, Jude 7 is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude's talking about Sodom. And, and uh, in the same way, these, these men indulged in gross immorality and went after strange f- flesh. Paul is specifically referring to homosexuality in this case. And again, they're exchanging the natural for the unnatural. And I don't know how you get around uh, trying to understand that Christianity and homosexuality are, are, are okay. One is mutually exclusive from the other. Now, I'm not saying that this is the act of homosexuality, that this is the sin of homosexuality we're talking about. And it's, it's something that sometimes people believe that, uh, that are, people are born with. And I think the response to that is we're all born with a sin nature and we just have different proclivities for different types of sin. Some are aggressive and, and mean and, and, can, and can get violent. Some people have a, a, a natural bent towards that. Some have an addictive bent where drug use, alcohol abuse, maybe gambling is their weakness. Some people have a, 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 an addiction towards pornography or fornication. That can be their weakness. And some, homosexuality, we are born with a sin nature and therefore all of it needs deliverance. All of it needs forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And so when you look at the biological design of man and woman, the biological design screams that man and woman are naturally to go together, not man with man and woman with woman. And so I've always thought if you take a generation and you put them in on an island, a generation of those who uh, are, are living a homosexual lifestyle, and you put them, let's say, on an island, they would live as long as their lifespan would let them. They would be one generation. That they wouldn't be able to be fruitful and multiply as God has commanded us to be. So our, our society as a whole has exchanged that lie, a truth for a lie, on a wholesale level. We see the vocal minority of the LGBT community being more militant, aggressive, and it resembles that which took place at Lot's front door. And if you're not on board with the agenda, uh, you're not allowed to be part of the society. You're not allowed to be politically involved. You're not allowed to hold a professional position. They are, you're not allowed to be in society any longer. It's, it's not okay to just disagree with them. You are now a hater, you are a phobe of some type, and you uh, will, will suffer their wrath in a sense. They rubber stamp abortion, leftist ideologies like communism and, and the aboli- abolishment of the nuclear family. It is a, a real, real uh, sin issue. And so again, you see this, this downward spiral in Romans playing out in our society now. This agenda is permeating at our schools at all levels, not at just the university level, but high school and on down to the point where kids are now being exposed to things that they, A, should only be exposed to through their parents, at the parents' discretion, at their time, that they want to ex- uh, express certain things to them. But they're hypersexualizing kids at such a young age. And so it is a real pervasive issue in our, in our society. And so if you notice, they're receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
this statement refers to the self-destructive nature of, of the homosexual, homosexual act. And so disease, emotional turmoil, brokenness, spiritual emptiness, it, it starts to degrade quickly. And so then Paul moves on, verses 28 through 32, to the final stage of, of how the pagan uh, is going to result in sin. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, there's another give them over, to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and, all they know, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So since man has disapproved of retaining God in their knowledge, in his knowledge base, now he's given over to a depraved mind. It's almost a, a, a trade, if you will. If you're, if you're not going to cognitively uh, acknowledge me, then I will give you over to this depraved mind. And then you have all sorts of perversity. You have perverted human character, unrighteousness, wicked, greedy, malicious, envious. You have perverted human conduct, notice. You have... Um, uh, fornication, murderous, defiant of parental authority, perverted human conversation. They're gossips, slanderers, boastful, arrogant. You have perverted human conceptualizations. They invent evil and they're without understanding. They invent evil and without understanding. And then you have perverted human alliances. They give hearty approval to those who practice such things, things that are worthy of death. God has intended man to be so much different, man and woman to be so different than what is described here. And, and Paul shows you that the, the decline that sin can have, that, 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 the, that denying God can have in, in a pagan's life. And so Paul laid out an airtight case here for the heathen, whether a person is worshiping a physical idol made of wood or stone, or whether a person, a person is worshiping an ideal, like an athlete, an entertainer, a CEO, somebody of high status, humanistic values, whether they're worshiping an idol or an ideal, they are willfully, deny, willfully denying God. They're robbing him of his, of his rightful place, denying the creation, rejecting that the evidence that God has placed within us and around us. And as a result, they go down this unfortunate path. And the path leads to death. God doesn't want anybody to be not only die in this case because it's going to mean spiritual separation from him from eternity. And so thank God, thanks be to God that the righteous man the righteous woman, we live by faith. And therefore, we uh, obtain righteousness just by simple faith. Just by simple faith. And there's one other exchange I like to think about. And, and sometimes I don't know why God gives us this exchange. But we exchange our unrighteousness for, for righteousness. He gives us bright, white, shining robes, whiter than snow. And, he, and we give him our filthy rags. That's the exchange God is offering to us. And so hopefully we've uh, made that exchange with God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the truth of your word. We thank you for how you've implanted or instilled in us the innate desire to worship that you, through your creation, have demonstrated your holiness, your righteousness, your grand design. And therefore, we come to that conclusion 
that there is a God and therefore if there is a God and there is a designer, we need forgiveness. We need to exchange our pile of filthy rags, our, our sin, our past, our gunk, our junk. We give it over to you, Lord, and you give us bright white robes, unstained, without spot or blemish. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We thank you, thank you, thank you. And Lord, we know that apart from you, we would be in the same place as the pagan. We would be worshiping a vain idol. We would be worshiping an ideal, some humanistic values, placing value on humankind and human efforts and human strength and human intellect. But thank you for revealing the truth to us, Lord, that we don't suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but in humility, we confess our sin and that we, you are faithful and just to forgive us that sin. And, and so, Lord, we come to you this evening thanking you and praising you for that. And Lord, if there's any in here tonight that has not received you, has, has denied you this, this opportunity to be on the throne of their hearts, we want to give you the opportunity to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. That if you are engaging, not in, not in the stumbling, the, the momentary stumbling of sin, which there is forgiveness for, that's not the salvation issue. The salvation issue is the lifestyle of sin, the willful disobedience, the willful rebellion. That's tonight. If that's you tonight, we'd love to pray for you and give you the opportunity to ask Christ into your life. He washes it all away. He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Is there anybody out there that would like to receive the Lord if you haven't? Just don't want to let an opportunity go by. If that's you, raise your hand. We'll pray for you as a church. And your hand. Those of you who have raised your hand, praise God, go ahead and repeat after me in the, in the quietness of your heart. Again, there's, there's no um, resume you have to submit. There's no interview. <laughs> there's no hoops you have to jump through. It's just a simple profession of faith. Dear Heavenly Father, I have sinned and I have fallen short of your righteousness. I receive your forgiveness. I receive the free gift of eternal life. I receive your Son, Jesus Christ, as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for washing me and cleansing me from all my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.